There we go. Here I am popping on the microphone, and um, I realize it's not going through my computer. That's actually going through uh, this microphone. Anyway, let's do the uh, intro. Paul Kimball is here with us. Well, he's not actually here, but he's here in uh, uh, by the web and in spirit. So, Wow, that was hardly it. There we go. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. At some point in the future, I am going to uh, change that uh, Radio Mysterioso intro. I found some uh, more source audio that I like a little bit better than uh, that stuff. Oh, we got some, a little bit of feedback. Let me let me just fade that. You know how the rest of that ends. Uh, it's Radio Mysterioso here for July first. It's already July. Rent is already due um, of 2012. And after a, a uh, embarrassing hiatus last week, or a sort of hiatus, we got um, Paul Kimball back. Paul, can you hear me? I can hear you just fine, Greg. Can you hear me? Yeah. You're, uh, I had to turn you up a little bit. There we go. As long as we're at the same volume here. Let me turn you. Uh, go ahead. Usually you're just turning me on, but now you're turning me up. Kinky. I like it. Yeah. Um, this uh, connection here is. I can turn my own mic up. Uh, I think we're okay. I okay. gotta keep. I gotta quit making those funny noises, though. There we go. That's a little better. Paul, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm. I'm actually kind of out of breath. Uh, I was out earlier this evening chasing UFOs, and it's not nearly as easy as you would think it is. Uh, chasing them in what way? I mean, with a net or. Uh... I, I tried everything. I tried a net. I had my utility belt on. Um, it's Canada Day up here in, in Canada, so there's a lot of good-looking young ladies out. So I went up to one and said, look, would you like to be my partner um, in this sort of adventurous quest to chase UFOs? And she said, well, I have no discernible talent. And I said, it doesn't matter. And so, yeah, I, I was out this evening chasing UFOs. I didn't catch any. But, see, that would have been hunting UFOs. I was just chasing them. UFO chasers might be a little bit more enjoyable, I think. What's that new National Geographic thing that's so horrible that I didn't even finish watching? Chasing UFOs, hence my lame attempt ah, at okay, too. yes, yes, yes. It only works, folks, if the, if the host of the program is with you. We should have discussed this beforehand, but 
We're just winging I it. Vaguely remember. I mean, it's it's I. What you did was you and a couple other people, Leslie Gunter and a couple other people, po- posted that little bit, the new National Geographic, whatever it is, called UFO Chasers, apparently. I watched literally, I, I mean, I, this wasn't a joke. What I posted on uh, Paul's Facebook was I watched about 15 seconds of it, and I was so annoyed I didn't even get to, I, I couldn't even find out what the point was because I knew it was going to be terrible just by seeing 15 seconds of it. Is, is that a uh, L.A. siren I hear in the Yes, background? it is. It's, we are back in the Kill Radio studio as of right now until I get my... There we go. Everybody going to be happy now. Wow, that's that's awesome. That's early. Usually it takes about 30 minutes into the show for one of those to show up. But... Yeah, I think that's for uh, somebody on the Mets because the F- Dodgers are finally going to win, I think, uh, today after se- losing seven in a row. So, uh, uh, go they're Giants. On their, yeah, they're on their way to Dodger Stadium. Well, you hate the Dodgers that much, huh? No, actually, I like the Dodgers, especially when I get free tickets. I still hold a grudge, and folks will talk about far more interesting things. But Greg was nice enough when I was um, house-sitting for him last year. He left a couple of tickets to a couple of Dodger games for my brother and I. So we went to one of them, and I went to get a hot dog. And I decided there's two types of dogs you can get in Dodger Stadium, the regular Dodger dog for 5 bucks, or the all-beef Dodger dog for 6 which makes you wonder what's in the regular one for five, but I won't get into that. Anyway, I, go up, I, I buy the, the all-beef hot dog. I come back. I sit down. And then I realize there's the people from whatever company make Dodger dogs around the field. The game hasn't started yet. Celebrating something. I, what the heck? My brother says, yeah, you know, it's like the 30th anniversary or whatever of the Dodger dog. So they're giving Dodger dogs are a dollar a dog. And then I notice everyone around me has got five, six Dodger dogs. I'm thinking, what the hell? That lady who sold me the all-beef dog for $6, she didn't tell me that I could get the regular Dodger dog for a buck. I would have loaded up on those. So I still, yeah, I hold a bit of a grudge against the administrative and culinary staff at Dodger Stadium. Otherwise, I like the Dodgers. There is a um, picture I took at, of one of the counters behind uh, one of the um, at one of the concessions there. And apparently people don't like when people put their, you know, jackets and backpacks and stuff on top of the refrigerator there. I guess it hurts it or makes it look messy. But instead of putting a sign on there or just peeling, p- telling people not to, somebody had written in uh, Magic Marker or uh, Sharpie pen, no put yonk on top, Y-O-N-K. <laughs> and I've got a picture of that somewhere. And that kind of sums up for me the uh, uh, Dodger Stadium food experience. No put yonk on top. Yeah. Yeah, well, the food the food is horrible. It's I mean, absolutely uh, terrible, unless you go down to the, the expensive seats, and then there's some a little bit better food. But that's not the point. The point is to have a Dodger dog, because that's part of the ballpark experience. Yeah. I just would have preferred to have mine for a dollar than, you know, pay for the $6 one. But nobody told me. Yeah. So, I, you know, you would think if it's Dodger Dog Day, the people at the concession stand would go, Hey, by the way, did you know, sir, we have a special on Dodger Dogs? You don't have to spend all that money, but no, they they didn't mention that to me. So, and then there was a fire in the stadium at the same, you know, yeah. two innings later. <laughs> they so they, my brother and I were moved to better seats actually. So they moved every, and there was this entire half of the stadium that was empty, and they kind of moved everybody into the, this other half of the stadium. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was a lot of fun. Game was horrible, but yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Well, you know, were you weren't you there when something exciting happened one year when we were somebody had a like a walk off home run or something like that? Yeah, it was the final game. Well, there there was one year. It was oh, the with the Giants the season. Yeah, and uh, who did you have playing for you? I think it was Luis Gonzalez. Yeah, yeah. 
and he he you know you were you and Sigrid Greg and Sigrid for the record are the two most morose Dodger fans you'll ever find. <laughs> they'll, they'll sit through nine innings at a, at a ball game and just their team could be up twenty eight to nothing and they'll whine about how the other team is inevitably going to defeat them. And so they were doing this this whole time in this game, and sure enough, the Dodgers were losing, but then they staged a comeback in the ninth inning, in the bottom of the ninth at the last game of the season, and even when it was over, I have we have pitchers, and you can see Greg, Sigrid looks happy, but Greg still has this look on his face as if he believes that the commissioner is going to come and somehow reverse the decision. <laughs> Because Gonzalez was on steroids, and they're going to reverse the decision, or you know, something. What, what it has been for years is that it's one of it's like the lowering expectation thing, almost like what uh, Tim uh, Benal and I were talking about a couple weeks ago. Um, you you just you kind of stop caring, and at that point, if something good happens, then you know you're not you're not primed for something good to happen every single time, and then you know having your hopes dash would just keep them low the whole time, and <laughs> you'll. You'll be um, much happier when something good happens because to you it'll be totally unexpected. So it's like marriage. Mm. It's like <laughs> some marriages. Yeah. Um, better to be pleasantly surprised than rudely awakened. Yes. Is it that a new motto, is that a, are you is that a new one from you? Oh no, that's been my motto for my entire life because I'm a Red Sox fan. <laughs> so until until 2004, yeah. You know, I learned in 1986, don't assume that you're going to win because I did. Yes. And then it was ripped away from me. Oh, you, you so. should never assume that. Unless you're on a huge roll and you're winning every time. Then if you assume you're going to win, and it only, not only works in baseball, it works in other places too. If you assume you're going to win, it makes that, if you're on the team actually, it makes it that much more likely that you're going to. But you have to be on a roll first, otherwise it doesn't work. It wasn't a huge roll that killed us in 1986. It was the little roll between Bill Buckner's yeah, Buckner. legs <laughs> and yeah. the little roll of Bob Stanley's wild pitch. And, you know, I could go on and on and on. Yes, but. yes. But we won't go. We won't go on too much about that unless it comes up again. Um, uh, what other news? Yesterday. Oh, I'm I'm on page sixty of your book. Oh, okay. So uh, you're still in the really depressing parts. It's not that depressing. What do you mean? The part where you quoted me at length from our podcast with you is 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 depressing. I like that part. No, the part where I talk about. Oh, about the how... human race not really deserving to live. Right. Yes. Sort of taking <laughs> Mac Tony's question from the 2006 New Frontier Symposium. Do we deserve to survive? His answer was, I don't know. My answer is, well, probably I don't know, but I'm more inclined to say no than he would have been, um, having, you know, had six more years to look at it than he had. It depends on the last, yeah, it depends on the... Uh the last few things you've heard or have happened to you in, in your life, whether you're going to be thinking or you're, you know, you, you, if you're hopeful, that, then that's if you're hopeful. If your general uh, uh, mood is depressed, yeah, I guess you're going to you're going to side with uh, uh, Paul, the first part of Paul's book in this case. Um, well, and, there is a hopeful note because I, I list. No, I'm getting know, to the, the hopeful note part. In fact, I think I've uh, already touched very. Heavily on the the uh, hopeful note part, where you say I don't think I'm as as hopeless or depressed as as Mac was about things, and I'm willing to give us a chance um, if we can give our, give ourselves a chance. And I haven't gotten past there. Right. My idea is I think we can do so much better. So while I can look backwards into the past, I mean, really, the history of the human race is not a pretty one. You can even look at the present, and it's not a pretty picture. But you can, if you understand that then you can look to the future and you can say, well, okay, how can we make it better? 
And this all kind of gets in the point of this. It's a book about the paranormal. So it gets into the idea of how an advanced non-human intelligence, wherever it might be from, would see us. I titled the chapter Mirror, Mirror. And so the only way you can really understand how they would see us is to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves. And in, in, as I mentioned, in Canada today, it's our national holiday, Canada Day. Yours will be in a couple of days, July 4th. And I have a, um, I have a post up on my uh, Facebook wall that says, I wonder how many Canadians celebrated Canada Day with one of their Beothic friends today. For anybody who doesn't know, and most people don't, the Beothic were a Native American indigenous tribe that were wiped out by the early 19th century after their contact with European civilizations, lived in Newfoundland. There's none left. You couldn't find a Beothic today if you wanted to. The language is lost, all of that. So, you know, as the book makes clear, our ancestors committed the kind of genocide that would have made Slobodan Milosevic blanch. And yet, so everything we have is built on that. If you don't understand that, if you just blow off fireworks on July 4th or on Canada Day and do the rah-rah thing, then you're not making progress. But if you can look back, something the Germans have become very good at over the last yeah. 60 years, to their credit. Well, who do you think is the entire rest of the world is saying is holding their face in the poo? Or they were, actually. Yes. Um, well, we should all hold our faces in the poo, which brings me, <laughs> brings me to another chapter of my book um, of a more sexual nature. But anyway, I digress. So, you know, whole yeah, the, book, the book starts off like that. But then it, it talk, moves into things about, well, okay, here's how they would see us. Understanding how they would see us, the question is, what message might they be trying to send to us? And I'll, I'll make it very clear for anybody who's listening. The book states right up front in the introduction, if you're a disbeliever, eh, the book's probably not for you. And if you're a true believer in any particular theory like the ETH, it's probably not for you either. I assume from the get-go, without stating that I actually believe this to be fact, but I assume for the sake of argument, that there is an advanced non-human intelligence of some sort from somewhere making contact with us in some way. So I'm not, I don't get into cases. I don't, every now and then, I, I use cases to illustrate a point, but I don't talk about cases to say, well, I'm going to prove to you that this, I just accept that it's real for the sake of argument, mm -hmm. and then let's move on and talk about what it might mean. Right. If you're interested in that kind of book, I have a publisher now for the book, so it'll be coming out hopefully sometime in the fall. Um, if you're not interested in that kind of book, there are plenty of books for either disbelievers or true believers that are out there that you can read. And, you know, go ahead, read those. But I, I was trying to do something different. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you did that. You've, you've taken that excluded middle idea, um, which uh, I was, uh, I've been ch championing for a long time, and many other people have, and done something new with it and pushed a little bit further. And um, I was just thinking as you were saying this, and I was reading the book, uh, over the last couple of days, um, okay, honestly, today, because I had to do my speech yesterday and Fair then enough. go to work, um, I was thinking if I read this book even like six months ago, which I was actually, um, I would have been thinking, God damn it, why didn't write, I write this? God damn it. Now as I'm reading, I'm thinking... God damn it, this is great. I'm glad he's saying this stuff. I'd be happy to write an intro for it. <laughs> so something changed in the last few months. Maybe I just let go and stop caring, or I don't know what it is, over conversations with you and Nick and a few other people um, to the point where the, the, the ego's gone away and I'm 
totally ready to enjoy the the fruits of other people's labor who I completely you know almost completely agree with in a lot of ways and I can see a lot of myself in what they write and and I hope some of it you know I hope some of it was passed on uh, from me and people that you know writers that I like uh, along to new books like yours or, or Micah Hanks's book or um, God who else uh, oh uh, AJ Go- how do you pronounce his name uh, Golius. Yeah, Golius is a contact ebook that is uh, being prepared right now. So, yeah, that, which promises, I think, you know, to be having talked to him about it on my own little podcast and followed his progress on it. He's doing a book on the contact e movement from a historical and a sociological point oh, of view. Oh, perfect. And, um, you know, intended for a mainstream audience, not yeah. just for UFO geeks or buffs. I, I think it's going to be a, a wonderful book. He's really delved into some cool contactee cases and personalities that I don't think very many people, even those that have sort of studied the contactees, will be terribly familiar with. And, oh, well, then you've you know, seen he, what he's, you've seen a cop, I mean, you've seen the text from the book already? No, no, just from talking to oh, him. Oh, okay. And, and just listening to him talk about, and I go, well, I've never heard of this lady before. I've never heard of this guy. Now, I'm no expert on the contactees, but I've hung out with people who are. Yeah. I know enough to know enough. And then I would, you know, I'd say, I look it up. I go, I have trouble finding any references to this person online. Now, yeah. that doesn't mean they don't exist, but he's he's gone above and beyond research into areas that I don't think a lot of people have. And, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating piece of American cultural history in the 1950s and 60s that I think is probably, when you look back at things 100 years from now, going to appear far more important than the actual UFO mystery itself. The cultural aspects yeah. and how it fit into the broader picture. The contactees are fascinating for that reason alone. So, yeah, Aaron's book, I'm really looking forward to it. Hopefully sometime early 2013, I think. Yeah, I mean, maybe I better – I was thinking, I wonder if you let me write an intro for it. And then I was thinking, you know what? He ought to have like a sociologist or something, somebody, if he's going to have one, write an intro for that book. I, I don't – what's the title? It's Flying Saucers, Space Brothers, and Interplanetary Femme Fatales. Perfect so, title. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, so how can I you really go like that? You can follow his um, progress at his blog, which is AJ Gullius. So that's A-J-G-U-L-Y-A-S dot com. Mm-hmm. And, and he sort of has a running counter on how many words he's written. I think he's <laughs> up to 70 – 72,000. Oh, that's, that's basically a book. So he's pretty much almost done. Well, I, you know, that's, that's the minimum, I think, required for any kind of a book. I think his target is 80 grand, and his publisher is McFarland, which is, you know, a reputable academic publisher. Uh-huh. So I think oh, the end of his, he has to have it delivered by the end of August. Um, so, yeah, that, you know, that could be the book of the next year, so to speak. I'm God, sure I mine will so. be. Yeah, well, so his, his, both his of could them. Be the book. <clears throat> Yeah, two, so who's, two who's books Vulcan? Harry Rositsky. You didn't listen to the show, did you? Well, it wasn't a show. It was I had to pay ten bucks to listen to a conference, yeah. and I, I was at, I wasn't even home. I was, it's a long weekend. Here, Why didn't so you I, plan I your whole day around my talk? You know, Paul, what's wrong well, with you? Why do you hate me now? No, <laughs> I just don't have anything to do with Walter. So if he's involved, I, I he wasn't. I can't. Well, he promotes it. Yeah, okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I Walter's actually, Walter features in my book in the chapter on synchronicity at great lengths, so, uh-huh. um, which you haven't gotten to yet. Yeah, so. it's a guy who's uh, it's CIA guy, former OSS guy named Harry Rositsky. Um, I 
did this talk, and then after it was done, I realized that I really hadn't done too much background on it for the people that were listening. But then, you know, when I was planning it, I thought about it while I was planning. I was like, how much background do I need to give people? Wow, that's coming from Paul's end. That's right. I'm doing my show from my home in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I live on Ruby Street, which is Ambulance Alley. Literally, the hospital is four blocks from my house, and every ambulance goes firing up the street. After 10 years, you get used to it. But I can now compete for folks keep, keeping track at home. Let's see who has more sirens tonight. Okay, it, we're Los tied Los Angeles now. or Halifax. Yeah, we're tied. So We're, we'll, one, we'll, we're one to one. Okay. here. Uh, Just remember, there's been a lot of people out drinking tonight. And I live two blocks from a crack house, so I have, I have a couple of advantages from you. I don't know. I'm on the <laughs> arteries true. between um, a lot of poor areas in Los Angeles, low-income areas. So there's a couple of two main arteries leading from and to those areas going right by us uh, at the intersection of Fairfax and, I mean, uh, Beverly and uh, Vermont. So It's true. And there was that bullet hole in the uh, front window that time I showed up to do the show. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, what were we talking were you... about? Oh, the the, the conference. Oh, I didn't oh. background the, anybody listening too much because I figured the few people that were going to be listening did not need to know that stuff. Uh, all they wanted to know was the w- how I found out what the meat of the w- you know what the meat of the, the the thing was and maybe a little history on the guy and that's what I gave them in like forty forty five minutes. And then I took um, ten minutes of questions. One from Ward, one of our one, one of the uh, loyal listeners to. Radio Mysterioso, and a couple which sounded like they came from Robert Hastings because they harped on, how can you believe Bill Moore? He's such a liar. And two, um, what was it? Oh, is there any way that the government can prosecute, uh, anybody can prosecute Moore for driving Benowitz insane and, and killing him? Uh, which I thought was a little bit overstating what happened and taking a few liberties with what happened, but that if that's what belief does. Right. Um, Well, I'd only say two things. One, when it comes to Bill Moore, I would ask the question, you know, how can you believe? Is there other evidence and stuff? Because Bill did have a history of, you know, gilding the lily. On the second part, though, Bill Moore didn't kill Paul Benowitz. Um, He didn't even drive him insane. He didn't, you know, he made his life. But Paul Benowitz was already on the the train to... uh, See, the last time I was on your show, I got in trouble for some remarks about Bud Hopkins, which, frankly, I regret because he had just passed away and I, I was a little too confrontational. I mean, so I apologize to anybody for those, too, like <laughs> Mike Clellan, because I did go too far. Bud Hopkins, by all accounts, was a very nice man. So while I might have disagreed about his abduction research, um, yeah, I went too far. So, I'm, But, yeah, Paul Benowitz was already on cuckoo train. <laughs> You know, so he probably would have gotten to his destination with or with somehow, with or without. I think Bill so. It, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't uh, uh, exonerate the uh, people that were around him uh, when that was going on. It's it's just that people never think about that. Um, that he basically was on, you know, like you said, he was on the he was on the train to he was on the crazy train, and um, I don't think anybody was going to stop him. I talked to Brian Parks, who used to be a um, research associate of Bill's, who helped me out, actually, in the last two or three weeks here before the t- talk by uh, passing along information and helping me remember things. Um, he said, I was listening to that, and I heard that question, and I, I thought about it. He said, I talked to Leo Sprinkle, that's what he, uh, he did, um, Brian, about two or three months ago about that period, and he said that he came to visit Paul in 1979 or 80, Twice, and the second time, and I reported this in the book, the second time he came to the house, 
um, for uh, regression hypnosis with this woman, Myrna Hansen. He came to the door with a shotgun in his hand and a pistol and a, and a, and a holster around his waist. This was before he even t- bothered to think about talking to the Air Force. Yeah. So, you know, there was a there's a documented, you know, I, I you know, poor guy. I feel sorry for him, but I, I don't think you can lay the blame for all this at at the uh, powers that be. You can lay part of the blame and that that, you know, and then on top of that, it's like if they if there was somebody that mounted some sort of campaign to prosecute I don't think they would have enough of a case. One, because of what I just pointed out and you pointed out. And two, because a lot of the stuff that they'd have to bring up would be the government could, could uh, in their minds and legally, rightfully claim they wouldn't have to say anything. Yeah. Plus, you know, in the grand scheme of things, when you look at what needs to be prosecuted and what doesn't, the Benowitz case is relatively small potatoes compared to a lot of the things that should be prosecuted. Yeah. I'm not talking, and I'm not talking about Roger Clemens. So <laughs> um, that never should have been prosecuted. So when you look, the, the idea, I mean, people like to, I'm, I might even have done it. I think when I was on with um, Walter and, and Ecker that time, I know Don Ecker, he was at the far right on so many things. He yeah. went off the deep end on prosecuting Benowitz or not Benowitz, but um, Moore and um, Doty. And I think Walter was on the side of, well, I think we should give him a medal. <laughs> you know, good spy work, fellas. I think yeah. I was somewhere in the middle. Yeah, but, me too. You know, I don't think you should be prosecuting these people. There are more important things to worry about. The important thing is the story's been told. Can you learn, preferably oh. by reading your book, can you take from that book the message, which is, yeah, the government does this kind of stuff, not just with UFOs, but with a whole range of things. Should they be doing it? In my mind, no. No. And Walter's Walter might disagree with me. I don't know. Don he, might Walter would no say idea. maybe in certain cases, um, w- with right. very, uh, very careful and um, and uh, following the letter of the law caveats. And Don would say yes, they should be able to do whatever they can to keep the terrorists from our door. And I would fall on the other, you know, side of the coin. Um, but we're not even talking about keeping the terrorists at the door. We're talking, in the Benowitz case, obviously, about if you believe the central narrative of the story, keeping our, meaning your, American technology, secret. And so using Benowitz and the UFO meme to do that. And I yeah. think that that, I, I don't have a problem with that. I recognize that you need to keep certain things secret. I don't think you should be using your own citizens and, and abusing your own citizens for that purpose. Yeah. So um, I, that's where I draw the line. There are other and better ways of doing it. But, you know, that kind of stuff goes on all the time. And, and yeah. you just have, I would just for folks who want to find something that's even you know, far more egregious. Take a look at the experiments the CIA was running on Canadian citizens yeah. in the 1960s yes. using LSD yes. and mind control in um, Canada. Yeah. What was the name of the guy? He was in, in uh, Montreal, I believe. Um, uh, Donald Cameron, wasn't it? Uh, Ewan Cameron. Ewell or Ewan Cameron. U-W-E-N Cameron, yes. Yeah. Um, with the, you know, with the willing acquiescence of the Canadian government. So, I mean, that's far more egregious than anything Benowitz and Doty, or Benowitz, Moore and Doty or anybody else cooked up dealing with Paul Benowitz. So, you know, there's a sliding continuum of government malfeasance. Yeah. And the Benowitz case falls sort of on the relatively minor 
You, um, you know what I notice, and, and people are going to get mad at me about this, is that around a lot of uh, the Benowitz case, a few other cases, and I guess you know this is a symptom of what's going on in general, there's a really strong current of self-righteous indignation that people draw on um, without really trying to figure out what the thing is. For, the first comes the self-righteous indignation, and then the, the whatever facts are falling in, you know... It, uh, in line with whatever that attitude is, um, and I, I don't want to say that because I, I don't want to sound like somebody who's sticking up for evil government, whatever, or or uh, abuses of power. Because I don't, I don't at all. But you know, like you said, you gotta you gotta have some perspective. And and um, saying these people are terrible and they should be prosecuted. Well, who the hell is going to disagree with you that you're at least partially right? Of course, it was not the right thing to do, and of course, it was deplorable, and of course, it shouldn't have happened. But yeah, sure. Knee-jerk, self-righteous indignation yeah. is easy. Yeah. It doesn't require any intellectual or moral effort. Yeah, that's like um, that's like a, a polit- like I said when a politician gets up and they 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 yell bad things are bad and good things are good and everybody cheers. Yeah, it's one of the <laughs> things I I touch on in the part of the book that you've already read, um, where I write about the Holocaust. Now there you go, folks. It's a paranormal book where I write at some length about the Holocaust, but you'll have to bear with me. It's it's easy to look at people like Hitler or Heydrich or some of the more cartoonish to us now <laughs> Nazis, the stereotypical ones, and say, look, they're monsters, they're evil. We can never be like that in America or Canada. It'll never happen again, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But you bring up Speer, which was great. Right. I focus in on the case of Albert Speer, but you could find you know, any number of people, and you could say these are the real monsters because they're us. You know, We could be Albert Speer. Given the, I, I might not be smart enough to be Spear. He's quite a bright man, but you know where is the line? And so it's easy to get morally indignant about Hitler and Himmler and Heydrich, but it becomes more complicated when you look at the rest of them and you examine the complicity of the Western countries in the Holocaust. What we knew, what we didn't know, what we did, and what we didn't do, and you know our complicity in other crimes, and on and on and on it goes. So moral indignation is easy, but a more balanced and nuanced look at things, whether it's the Holocaust or whether it's the Paul Benowitz story, or whether in my case, you know, without getting into it at great length, the David Jacobs, Emma Woods thing. I wrote a post when that was blowing up, and I said, look, you know, what Jacobs did was wrong, but we should have a measure of sympathy for the man, because I clearly think that he has some issues. Yeah. Um, And so... He's as much a victim of his own psychosis as Emma Woods is a victim of his actions. Yeah. Not many people got that. <laughs> you know, I was roundly criticized for that by a number of people, sort of the very loud people on the Internet who said, you know, great, Kimball, for saying that, you know, the obvious Jacobs is evil, which I didn't say. But what sympathetic sympathy for the man, you know, understanding, trying to find a balanced, middle ground, nuanced position. Oh, no, let's just tar and feather. No, no, you have to choose sides and stick with that side and wave a flag and all that. There's just there, there's no middle ground here. And it, it that's what that's one of the things that, you know, it probably drives people out of the UFO thing and out of a lot of things because they can't the people who are loudest are the ones everybody hears, obviously. And the people who are loudest are the ones with the belief systems to hold up and it becomes very annoying i uh, the first reactions i've gotten out of the the speech are well it sounds like it was a russian you know uh, uh, all this was a uh, a cover-up of some ufo cover-up under the guise of being uh, uh, some sort of a uh, russian counterintelligence thing i was like 
all this stuff I've said about this, and it's still about UFOs mainly. Is that what you're saying? Nobody listened to anything I said, or at least they didn't take it to heart. I don't know. But what I was well, saying was that the UFOs weren't very important. It was that was just a minor part of the story. I've said that hundreds of times, and um, and then I tried to point out that the you know this seems to make sense if you put it all together. Uh, that this was some sort of counterintelligence operation, the UFO thing was just used as a tool. No, apparently it was a, it's uh, some sort of a, a uh, operation designed to fool people about UFOs and cover it up under the guise of being a Russian counterintelligence operation. That I don't know. To, I I can't see taking it that one more step. It just seems like that seems like a, a single-minded way to look at it. Well, you know, it's a single-minded subject in many respects, but it's not just the UFOs or paranormal. It, it pervades our culture. Politics is the perfect example. Um, the excluded middle exists everywhere. And so all you have to do is watch Fox News, and you can see the, how the far right treats politics. And then you can tune into MSNBC, and you can see how the center-right, believe me, folks, they're not liberals. No. How the, there, there are no liberals in the United States, as far as I can tell. How the center right treats politics, but you know extremists within the American paradigm, fine. Um, but it's really just people yelling at each other. Yeah. And spectacle, as you talk about in your book. Yes, which goes back to the situationists, uh, situationists in the late 1960s, the French Guy Debord and Raoul Vanagem. I always pronounce his name wrong. Um, talking about how we live in the society of the spectacle, and it, you know, they were they were talking about their own time. Turns out, fifty year, almost fifty years later, that they were prophets. Because I think the society of the spectacle that we're living in now, they probably couldn't even have imagined. Yeah. Um, if they had been thinking about it in the nineteen sixties, they would look, I suspect, at what we have now and go, "Good lord, um, what are you people doing?" So, you know, I, yeah. in the book, I talk about things like mixed martial arts, which I abhor. Uh, I used to be a boxing fan. I'm not anymore because I've, I've become more aware than I was when I was younger about the dangers of boxing. All you have to do is look at the career of Wilfred uh, Benitez, who was one of my favorite fighters as a kid. Um, a welterweight, he was in with Duran and Hearns. He was part of that great Sugar Ray Leonard, that great group of welterweights that were active when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And so my dad was a boxing fan, and there'll be a point to this, folks, by the way. My dad was a boxing <laughs> fan. We, we got Ring Magazine, Boxing Illustrated. So I, I was a boxing fan. The sweet science, as we called it. And if you watched it, there was not a science to it, but there was a... There was a, a seemingly a poetry to it. Yes, these were guys hitting each other, but they were doing it with gloves, and there was there, there was some skill. There seemed to be some skill. There is some skill involved, and there seemed to be some chivalry, at least a you know a sort of a gentleman's agreement that yeah we're going to go in and fight, but it, we're we're sort of honorable warriors. Fine. Well, innocence lost for me was sort of reading what happened to a lot of these boxers as I grew older how they lost their money, how they were abused by the people who promoted them, and the damage that was done to them. And we, the crowd, were feeding off of that. Well, then you look at mixed martial arts. So here's how society has evolved. Instead of moving away and banning boxing, or at the very least making it socially unacceptable um, to watch it, kind of the way we do with cigarette smoke, we've amped it up. We've, we've taken the spectacle one step further. We've, we've put them in an octagon, taken the gloves off, and allowed them to kick and punch and maim and claw. And yeah, technically there's a few rules, but it's, it's now Roman gladiators. We're, and for anyone who thinks this can't happen, I would semi-confidently predict that we're 10 or 20 years away from actual death matches being televised as oh, pay-per-views. Yeah. 
where you know basically Roman gladiators, because we'll have a generation that's grown up watching Spartacus on HBO and thinking that it's you know kind of cool. So we're moving in a different direction than I think the one that people were hoping in the 1960s we were going to move in. And that's an interesting thing, too, to consider where the turning point was. And I think it was probably, you know, Vietnam and Watergate in the late 60s and through the 70s. And, uh, and that changed things. And we're moving in a different direction now. And we have been for 30 or 35 years. The well, and the, where... and the cynicism engendered after that from probably the 1980s on for, for sure. most of, in this country anyway. The entire generation that grew up where your icon said greed is good, where you would have a president who would say, um, we, can, we need a balanced budget, even though he was racking up a huge deficit. I don't want to get into politics, but no. it, it does relate to you have to kind of get into politics because you kind of have to ask if there is an advanced non-human intelligence, how do they see us? What do they see when they look at us? How would we want them to see us? Would we want them to see us as greedy, grasping, selfish? murderous, um, sort of almost animalistic beings, or would we want them to see us as far from perfect, but at least aware of our flaws and striving to become better, both as individuals and as a society, as mm -hmm. a, a people? I would like to think that we would like to be the latter. That's how we would like them to see us. But the truth is, I don't think we ever really think about it. I don't think most people, including a lot of people who walk around saying, oh, yeah, I go to church every Sunday. I believe in God, blah, blah, blah. Well, really? Well, how do you think God thinks about you if you believe in him and what you're doing and where you work and how your country behaves and all this sort of stuff? Yeah. But I don't think people think about that, and I think they should. So my book will touch, you know, there's a running theme in it, basically mirror, mirror. How would we want to be seen and how are they seeing us? And uh, I think, you know, that probably won't find a terribly receptive audience but you never know maybe it will well i think the people that would be interested in the book as you elucidate here on the show and also say at the beginning of the book you know if you if you're uh if you're either a, a believer or a non-believer or anybody with any kind of fixed idea about philosophical things um you probably won't enjoy the book because it's not uh, it's not made for those kind of people uh what it's made for are people who are continually questioning um, looking at themselves, looking around them, and seeing possibly how they could do things a little bit differently or treat people around them a little bit differently or what, whatever you want to call it, all the things you were just talking about. And that, in that, I think it's valuable, and it's much better than just having some sort of a book on UFOs or the book, a book on the paranormal or something like that. I think people that are interested in those things need to read, read your book. I, I, I think it, it opens up something that they would be interested in into the wider world. And that, I think part, that's partly what's needed. You know, what do you do to, to improve things? You do what you do. You do what you do best. You do what you like to do, unless that's like killing people or something. And uh, yeah, I, I hopefully don't that, make, that. Yeah, makes a little bit of difference in somebody's life. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, my, my name will be on the book as the author. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it is my book. But it's kind of like songwriting in a band. I view myself as a member of a band, and I wrote most of the songs for my band, so I would get the songwriting credit. But the arranging credit always went to the band. Mm -hmm. So, in this case, the arrangers are you, Nick Redfern, Mac Tonys, uh, Brittany Babakayoff, who a young friend of mine who I traveled with and got to know, and um, has an interest in consciousness and, and all sorts of things that people might call new agey. But, you know, you can learn things, from, especially from younger people, who give you a different perspective. doesn't mean I have to agree with it. It means I process it, 
take those things out of it that I think make sense. Yeah. Perhaps reject those things that I don't think make sense, but it forms a part of the whole. So I come up with an idea or a song, but all you guys, and there are others like Aaron, Aaron Gullius, all these people, Tony Morrill, all these people that I run into, that I've talked to over the years, that I find interesting, um, that offer something, you know, they're the arrangers. And so I, I view it kind of as a synthesis of the various people that I've met. You and Nick and, and Mac would be at the top of that list, obviously, because I've talked to you and I find, you know, there's a reason why I call us the cabal. I know you guys don't like that term, but I find it amusing because it annoys people. I know. It um, doesn't annoy me. I think it's pretty, I, I like it. The thing is, people say, you know, who's, who made him the, then? Who made them? That's like, you can do the same thing. Go go out and do it. Paul's nobody nobody announced that. You know nobody gave us any yeah. specific. Paul just announced it, which is fine. You know you go do that too. That's fine. Well, you have your own cabal. Go right ahead. Oh, I know it doesn't make you angry. It makes a lot, as you say, a lot. Of, some folks out there angry is like, who are you to like? What kind of cabal? Secret information and you? Uh, no, I just like four guys who are friends. And yeah, I just called us the cabal or the challengers of the unknown for fun. <laughs> I did it with a smile on my face. Yeah. And and you people, some of you folks, actually took it seriously. Well, okay, now I'll take it seriously. So yeah, there is a cabal. Um, and I keep writing the CIA and saying, look, we have a cabal. Can we like you know help you out? Can we get a check? Walter can be in the cabal. Like there's, there's, ad, we're the cabal, and then there's, there's adjunct members, kind of like <laughs> you know, allies like Walter and Aaron Gullius and Tony Morrill and Tim Benal. They're not in the cabal, but you know, they're they're allies. They're like NATO. They don't do the heavy lifting, but they're <laughs> technically they're there. No. So yeah, you know, what is the cabal? Well, sure, the four of us were the cabal, I guess. But all of these other people are the cabal. We're all the cabal. Yeah. Anybody that uh, has an interest in looking at this stuff in an open mind in a different way. Lance yeah. Moody, for me, is yeah. a member of my sort of extended cabal. Right. You know, a very skeptical, hardline skeptical guy. But he raises points. He makes me think about things. He had a very, we had a long-running sort of online battle at the Paracast forums um, before I realized that the Paracast was a horrible place. Um <laughs> On the uh, on the Kelly Johnson case, the Santa Barbara case that was in my best evidence film, yeah. I don't agree necessarily with his conclusions, but he brought up a lot of questions that uh, I thought were valid and needed answering. You have to be willing to have that kind of dialogue. Yeah. He's changed my perspective on that case and one or two others. Yeah. I don't think I've changed his perspective on any cases, but you never know. So it's good to have that kind of input from all sorts of different people. But yeah, at the end of the day, you'll find that you gravitate towards people that not have the same views of, as you. I think most people do that. But in my case, in your case, I think we gravitate towards those people that don't have any views. We just have questions. Yeah, which well, is a, a well view they, have, in and of they have views, but they're informed by, you would hope, a long series of um, study, introspection, and uh, mulling the idea over and uh, talking about it with other people to strengthen it or... or or um, you know, change it as 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 uh, need as you know as as the new information dictates, which is about all you can do and 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 appear sane and keep yourself sane, not only in you know with the paranormal but also in life. Um, I made a specific point at the end of the talk yesterday, not to bring it back to that completely, but I said you know you know I'm just putting this out so that people can either you know shore it up with more evidence or, you know, tear it down with equally compelling evidence. I, I don't know. Bill told me this. I haven't seen anything that should contradict it. 
but it would be nice for somebody with either you know the time, um, the access, uh, the expertise, the intelligence more than I have to dig into this a little bit more. And and this is the starting point. So you know, go have at it. I don't care if I'm right or not. So far, I think I am, but you know, it's it doesn't rest on a whole hell of a lot of evidence except for it making sense and making sense in the in the context of everything that I've experienced, talked to people about, double-checked, um, you know, uh, cross-checked with uh, open sources, with UFO researchers, etc. It just, it, it all seems to make sense. And if the, somebody can up, come up with a good reason that doesn't, fine. That's fine by me. Um, but I... If I think something is stupid and just because and just and based just on somebody's belief system and them saying, "Well, you're wrong," it's like, "Why?" Well, because of this and this and this and this. And I said, "Well, you've said that before, and it doesn't make sense to me. And if anybody looks at it, I think it won't make sense." Well, you're still wrong. It's like, okay, forget it. I don't want to talk to you anymore. But if somebody comes up with something, and this should be in any endeavor, if somebody comes up with new information that makes you face the fact that you might be wrong or at least have to change your opinion slightly, I think, I think you should be open to that. It's, it's, uh, it's the only way to survive and not turn into somebody that everybody finds annoying, you know? Yeah, well, you know, my sort of, as I get older and closer to the Grim Reaper, <laughs> my perspective changes a bit. You know, I, I believe that two seconds before I die, or say five seconds before I die, assuming that I don't get... I don't like die without any awareness that I'm going to die. Like I don't get hit by a bus from behind or something, but assuming I'm on my <laughs> deathbed or something and I, I have a few moments to contemplate what's about to happen. I'm not going to know, you know, you can think, you know, you can have, but it's going to be that complete mystery because you can't be sure. So I back, then I backtrack from that and I say, well, you know what, if I can't be sure about that, then what can I be sure about? And once you start trying to figure out what that list is, it's a pretty short list. There's a few things I'm sure of. I'm sure that the Smiths are better than the Ramones. Nick. <laughs> um, I'm sure. I'm sure that you know haggis is a horrible, horrible thing. And yet, if you're in Scotland, you have to eat it. And I'm sure that sopes are wonderful, but you can't get good ones in Canada. There's three things I'm sure of. But after that, you know, it's a pretty short list. <laughs> so then you say, well, if if I'm not sure about all these anything, um then I have to be pretty open-minded. I have to have opinions, but I have to be willing to be proven wrong. I have to be willing to have my mind changed. Um, I have to, you know, do a whole bunch of things that maybe 10 years ago I might not have been as willing to do. Yeah. I think if you ask me 10 years from now, if I'm still here, uh, I might be even more willing to countenance new ideas than I am now. Because yeah. I think that's a natural part, not just of growing up, well, I don't think it's part of growing up. I think it's part of getting closer to the end of whatever this is. Yeah. And, you know, your mind focuses in, well, what do I know for sure? And what don't I know for sure? And what are the possibilities? Because I kind of like to have a list, like those old multiple choice tests you have to do in high school, A, B, C, D, E. Well, I'd like to know what A, B, C, D, and E are, you know, as I approach the Grim Reaper. And then, you know, I'll just fill in all of the above and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, if that makes any sense, it makes not. it makes total sense. And I, I would uh, the caveat I always have when people say, "Well, you know, if you if you don't have a fixed opinion about anything, a really have you know uh, anchored opinion about anything, that nothing will change, then you're just you know you're, you 
you have no convictions and you're morally ambiguous. And like, no, my caveat is there are certain things I know to be true, such as, and it stems from everything else. Treat other people well. I yes. think that's. I think that's. You can't really argue that one. You know. I mean, in the long run, I guess if somebody's like trying to kill you, you have to defend yourself, or um, they're trying to harm a loved one or something like that. You have to defend them, and that's not being very nice. But in general. <laughs> If you have, you know, if, if you try to try to pe- treat people as well as you would treat anyone that you know or yourself or whatever. I mean, that the golden rule is probably it probably covers everything else. It covers stealing and murder and war and everything. So yeah, I that that's something I don't have. Any, I don't budge on obviously. But you know, the things like you know, are UFOs aliens from other planets? There's a lot of leeway there, a whole hell of a lot of leeway. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of another one. I, I don't know. I, I think the death penalty is wrong. There's slight leeway there, um, but not much. Just it, it, there's there's sliding scales. Carlos wrote in, uh, speaking of death, and said, uh, "Hello, ask, Carlos. Yeah, ask Paul to name uh, one MMA death in the ring. <laughs> Mixed martial arts. Yeah, it's it's not a question of death, and that's that's a uh, hi, Carlos." Uh, I respect his opinion, but that's a tremendously simple-minded and reductionist way of looking at it. Well, Name I think he's actually death. partially, you know, joking too. But still, and and I don't mean simple-minded. I'm, you know, in a pejorative sense. I like Carlos, and he's thanks for the question. But yeah, you know, um, you can't just look at how many whether there's been a death in the ring. Although I do think that's coming, as I said, in the eventually it will happen, yeah. and eventually we'll be paying for it to happen. I think, but. Um, you have to look at the long-term impact, not just on the fighters, but also on society. Uh, yeah. You know, what, like how it is changing us to have this kind of casual violence glorified. And I mean glorified. And you can see it in other sports, too. Professional football, by which I mean American professional football, yeah. not the rest, not the version that the rest of the world plays. Yes. But you're, well, Canada, we play it, too. Yeah. Um, you know, the violence inherent in that game that they're now finally realizing they're trying to tampen it down. And you see former football players, stars in the NFL, saying, I wouldn't let my kids play football. Yeah. And you're, I think you're starting, I, I kind of hope you're starting to see a cultural change because I think you can play football without it being incredibly violent. Um, and yet somehow the violence seems to be what a lot of people focus on as opposed to the skill involved. But when it comes to something like two guys in a ring trying to beat each other's brains out, you know, I recognize that there's a skill there. There's a skill of two guys standing outside the bar down the street from me trying to beat each other's brains out. I'm, you know, where do you draw the line? I'm not. What, <laughs> Is it a gonna, useful skill? I do not know. Probably not. Are we going not. to allow dueling? You know, we, we decided that dueling was something that we should ban many, many, many years ago. Yeah. Is that is that set for a comeback? Because you could create rules around it um, and make it sort of socially acceptable, I guess. You know, what at what which road do you want to go down? The road that glorifies violence or the road that maybe glorifies something else? And yeah. what do we want our popular entertainment to be? And, you know, we have far too many cop shows, for instance. Shows about cops, shows about murderers. You, if aliens came to our planet and turned on a television in the United States <laughs> or Canada or even the United Kingdom and said, well, okay, clearly their popular culture will tell us everything we need to know about who they are. And I think you can make a good argument that popular culture does reflect who we are. If you looked at television, you would walk away and go, good Lord, we do not want to land on this planet. These, these people are crazy. You know, even the people who are trying to catch the people who are killing people are crazy. So, yeah. yeah. 
They're obsessed know, they, with death. Well, sex and death, you know. But I think a little bit the, more death in the last few years. Yeah, well, what are, what are the most popular movies around now? Superhero movies. Glorifying, yeah. basically, super-powered, in many cases, like Batman, Bruce Wayne, plutocratic, yeah. rich vigilantes. Yeah. So saying the entire system's broken, the government is evil, can't do anything, the police are wrong, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, how do we fix it? We're going to take a really rich guy who can afford all this tech, put him in a cape, and send him out to beat the crap out of people. And we'll just assume that 100 out of 100 of the people he beats the crap out of are guilty. Yeah. <laughs> that he's always right. Yeah. <laughs> I was what in a... Of, go ahead. Yeah, what kind of message is that sending? And I'm a Batman fan. I love the films, uh, yeah. Chris Nolan films. But I love them because I think there's they're nuanced, they're complex, they raise some interesting questions about our society. I think the Joker in the, um, the last one, The Dark Knight, yeah. Uh, returns. No, it's God. I get the Dark Knight. Yes. You know, race and really enter the whole thing on the ferry where who's going to blow up whom and all that sort of stuff. And you start to look at it and you say, well, okay, yeah, Batman is technically the good guy, I guess, in this film. But is that kind of is that the kind of good guy we want in our society? You know. Anyway, interesting questions. Those are the kind. There's no right and wrong. There's my opinion. There's Carlos's opinion. There's your opinion. But I I think we should all be asking those kinds of questions. So I'm sorry, Carlos, that I said simple-minded. Um, reductionist, I do stand by that. And I, I suspect Carlos had his tongue slightly in cheek. Yes. Although perhaps, perhaps not. I um, used to have this idea when I was younger, and I stuck to it probably up to just now. Um, and I, it was sort of a joke, but not completely. And I was saying, instead of the death penalty, what, abolish that. But then have gladiator fights for convicted murderers. However, you don't force the people into it. You let them choose it if they want to do it. And then I'm, and after talking to you a little bit, Paul, you have changed my mind. I'm not even going to refer to it jokingly anymore. So I've convinced you that death fights for gla- or convicted criminals or murderers is that's a bad thing. Yeah. Huzzah. Huh? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. Penalty. I don't know what the hell went wrong with me just now, but that, that's something I've kind of referred to every, every once in a while, kind of as a joke at a party or whatever. And I'm not. And I say I'm not totally joking about this, um, you know. And then and then you know sell the TV rights and and take all the money and use that to balance the budget and you know put it in the schools and all that. And I'm and then you know after talking to you for a little bit, I'm thinking what kind of message is that sending to people, especially those schools you're going to give money to? Uh, pretty you know it's. Uh, barbaric. It's stupid. So, you know, so you, you've divested me of that uh, right here tonight on this show. Oh. Well, um, wasn't my intention, but I mean, when you look at the countries in the world that the United States sits on the same list as who employ the death penalty, you start to realize it's kind of like you're hanging out in a bar. <laughs> who am I hanging out with? Am I hanging out with nice people and having a good time? Or am I hanging out with drug dealers and thugs and murderers? Because that's who the United States is hanging out with by employing the death penalty. Yeah. Meanwhile, Canada and most of sort of the civilized world that has abolished the death penalty, well, we're hanging out, you know, with sort of preppies and cool people and stuff, <laughs> having a nice drink and a good chat. And, th- and we're not soft on crime. We stick our murderers in jail and we, we keep them there. But the death penalty, to me, is a moral wrong. And there's also practical reasons why I think it's wrong as from a legal perspective. Yeah. Uh, we've had cases in Canada where wrong- people were wrongfully convicted and sent to jail. The difference between my country and yours is... They can be released from jail if they're found innocent. 
They were, and it doesn't make things all right. The Donald Marshall case in Nova Scotia is one of the landmark cases in Canada. He was a Native American who was in prison. There was racism involved, and, and which is certainly an aspect of the American judicial system. Uh -huh. um, and years later, it was discovered he was actually not guilty. He had sort of been framed. Well, they let him out. They paid him compensation. It didn't make everything better, but at least he was still able to walk out of prison. Yeah. If he had been in the American system, he would have been executed. Well, depending we might, on what state he was in. Well, yes. If if he had been in a state like Texas, where there was the death penalty, he would have been executed. So if, if the moral arguments don't work for you, then I use that one, which is just I would rather let ten guilty people go free than execute an innocent man. Yeah. Because I'd hate I'd hate to be that innocent man. I don't I see. Every, yeah. I don't see the argument against that. People's like, well, that's going to happen once in a while. It's like, what? <laughs> I know. What? Well, what? What? You? What if that was you or somebody in your family? Oh, that wouldn't happen to me. Yeah, well, it does. Donald Marshall's family, Ray Milgard, who was a Canadian in Saskatchewan, who was convicted of murder and then released because he was wrongfully convicted. You know, you can go down the list. Yeah. Um, and so you look at it and you just you just kind of say, and, and again, this is kind of gets into politics, but to me it gets into more of a moral thing and who we are as a people and how we would want to be viewed and expect to be viewed by an advanced non-human intelligence. And I'm, I'm guessing that an advanced human non-human intelligence doesn't employ the death penalty. Uh, I think that's probably a reasonable assumption. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, in which case, I'll be happy to chat with the advanced non-human intelligence about why the death penalty is wrong. Um, so anyway, you know, but you can go down that reasonable people can disagree about these things, but they should at least be talking about it. Yeah. And, and that's part of what I think our society should be doing. And if my book, in some small, teeny tiny, infinitesimal, incremental way, through the paranormal of all things, manages to get at least two or three people thinking in that way where they wouldn't have otherwise, well, okay, job well done, and then I'll move on to something else. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the fact that you did it and you're going to release it is is probably ninety nine percent of it, and the, the, if it has an effect, that that's good. Um, I I haven't written a lot, but once in a while somebody will come to me and say, look, you know that. It changed my way of looking at things, and you know, and I, and I read that early on, and it, it, it affected me, and it, that makes me happy, you know. Um, or they come up to me and say, "You're absolutely wrong," and here's why. And most of the time, they're completely out to lunch, and they don't make any sense at all. But once in a while, somebody will tell me something, as you did just now, that starts to change my mind, or uh, or changes it completely, and I. I I I would like to say I welcome that, but it, you know, anytime somebody's trying to come in and change your mind and and show you that you were slightly wrong or completely wrong, you're going to fight against it. It's your natural, uh, it's your natural reaction. But yeah. you you know, for the betterment of yourself and the people around you and everybody, you know, if if you need to change your opinion about something in the face of overwhelming or maybe not even overwhelming evidence, you should be willing to do that. I think. I mean, I. Uh, it makes me sound all like I'm trying to be all you know, morally uh, superior, or whatever. I, I'm not, not at all. I I just think that's probably good advice. Yeah, I try. Sometimes I can come across as morally superior, arrogant, whatever. I try less so than I used to. As I get older, I try and realize my own flaws, and I try and act differently. By the way, horns don't count as sirens, so we're still at one one. I didn't I say they did. Horn. I know, but for I, anybody, I, I would not home, claim I, I am not changing the rules in midstream. I'm calling nine nine one one right now. 
to come to my house. <laughs> like I've got a major four alarm fire. I need sirens, people. I'm calling there's fires going on all around me. Um, you know, and and I think two things we should note as we approach the one o'clock. One o'clock to me, nine o'clock for you. Um, maybe we should cut to a song so people can have a break for from us talking. And two, I do want to say. Um, I made this offhand. I feel bad. See, I'm getting older and wiser. Like Carlos wrote in, and whether he was serious or not, I, I said simple-minded, which was my knee-jerk reaction. It's not simple-minded. It just disagrees with my perspective. Fine. We, you know, so I take, Carlos, if you're still listening, I seriously take back simple-minded. I do think it is kind of reductionist, but that's a term that you can you know, argue about. And he could say mine is maybe reductionist in a different way. But it's not simple-minded. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm sorry about that. And it's, I felt bad, too, about that Bud Hopkins thing. Ever since I read those comments, and I'm still combative. People can go back and read it or listen to it. And, you know, those are the kind of things I look back and I, now, and I still say things like that every now and then. I go, ah, oh, what am I thinking? Like, I, I, you just have to try and act differently. So it's, it's also a personal journey. It's a personal process of becoming a better person. And that's yeah. why I like hanging out with you guys, because I think you've taken some of the rough edges off me, and I still have plenty of them. But, um, you know, just as I think as a society, we should become more caring and peaceful. And, yeah, as an individual, I should become more caring and peaceful and understanding. So, yeah, it's a personal journey um, as much as it is a societal one. All right. I, yeah. Oh, look, I think well, I think Carlos might have written back here. Oh, no. Adam Gorightly says, tell Kimball that an advanced intelligence perhaps wouldn't care about the death penalty because they understand that there really is no death. And that matter is transcendent and our spirit energy is timeless and groovy. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think we should play some Billy Joel for Adam now. Um, I don't have I, any Billy and Joel. And if you asked me to play some, I would hang up on you if you were serious. Oh, uh, I think seeing advanced non-human intelligence would look at us and say, hey, guys, we like things just the way we are. And then go into Billy Joel. I think I, I think any any non-human intelligence that would like Billy Joel, you could not put advanced in front of that. Yeah, perhaps not. Well, you know what? <laughs> hey, I like Billy Joel at certain times in certain places with certain people. Really? I a, never yeah. do. Well, you clearly haven't been hanging out with some of the certain people that I have. Um, but um, let's just say that at 3 in the morning with her. Anyway, you know, hey, you got to go along to get along, or whatever that phrase is. But if I had my, I've been doing this thing on my Facebook page and sort of on my website. Uh, what is it? Top my favorite makeout albums. Yes, which I've I suspect, seen that. I suspect be different from most people's because among them I had ACDC and Portishead, oh, which maybe wouldn't show up on a lot of people's lists. Um, but yeah, Billy Joel. Yeah, he might he might show up on my list. Given you know one or two people that I've known over the years. Why not? Sure. But we won't play Billy Joel. We Blah. should play some of that Western stuff that I love. Which Western stuff? You know, the song that we always play. Uh, I always get you to play. Get your gun. I got oh, Gringo Like Me. I was yes. going to play um, a recording of Nowhere Man um, oh. without the vocals. Okay, that works too. Can we sing along? Yes, <laughs> we can. No, we probably shouldn't. You have to, but the thing is, it starts the way the song starts. You have to start with the singing, and then the music cuts in. You see. Oh. See, for folks who don't know, I hang out with Greg in L.A. Uh, not as often as I'd like, but more often than you know, I than I ever would have imagined. And as we're driving <laughs> around in L.A., we often just windows down, turn up the Beatles, and sing along with them. And I think you do the high, and I do the low. Yes. You do the high much better than I do the low. And a favorite oh. is "There's a Place." That's one of our sort of yeah. sing-alongs. 
But nowhere, man. Sure, I'm not going to sing along to it though, because okay. anybody who's listening will turn off. Yeah. Nowhere, man. Please listen. So it's like he's he's a real nowhere man nowhere sitting man. in his in nowhere, nowhere land. land now. Oh come on. <laughs> there we go. Everybody sing. I'm not going to sing. I'd wind up singing like Bob Dylan. <laughs> what you oh, missing? Listen. <laughs> you don't know what you're missing. The world is at your command. You're at your command. like having that come on in the car unexpectedly and then being able to sing along with it uh yeah oh there you are paul yeah no i'm back i was just um checking my facebook page and uh you know see here's here's a good example of something interesting i was referencing uh britney babakayoff earlier and she has a uh, a new cover photo on her facebook page and it's of a sunset and her sister writes beauty the aliens are coming because it's a lovely picture of a sunset and Brittany replies, and I, you know, Brittany, I hope well, I'm not going to send you to her Facebook site, but her reply is, we're already here. <laughs> now, I find that to be a really sort of kind of, it's catchy and cute and, and quick, but I find it to be an interesting, see, that's to me is a starting point for a conversation. Yes. Just the idea that, you know, the aliens are already here. And in my book, I sort of maybe touch on that a bit. But Go Rightly's point, too, is that the whatever the advanced non-human intelligence is probably doesn't give a rat's behind about whether we use the death penalty or not. I think they might care about that one. But I'm pretty sure they don't really care about whether or not we're going to pave a road in a certain city or, you know, any one of the things that we spend a lot of our time arguing about. 
you know, I think is probably quite right. They might not even care about the death penalty. They might have a bigger sort of picture in mind. And what we do on a day-to-day -day basis maybe isn't exactly what they're spending all their time thinking about. But I think it's useful for us to think about it. And that idea that, you know, hey, if somebody is looking at us, what would they... It's like, if somebody saw me in my window, it's why I don't walk around my house naked. Well, it's, one of the, it's, it's one of the reasons. Because I might walk by a window and somebody would see something that I don't want them to see. So we, we're all, we live in this observed reality. You know, I write about the observer effect. In so many ways, our behavior is influenced, even if people aren't looking at us, but just by the thought that they might be looking at us. So we already do it. We change our behavior as people, as societies, based on the observer effect already. Yeah. I just think we need to apply that on a bigger scale. But yeah, and act like there's always somebody looking. I mean, this is this is an old uh, idea from many different philosophical and spiritual traditions. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I'm not claiming I've created some sort of new philosophy here. I'm perfectly happy to say I'm borrowing from a whole bunch of different people. There's no, there's nothing new in my book. It's just a synthesis of a whole bunch of things that maybe comes out in a new way. Yes, you, you've made a sandwich out of uh, of uh, ingredients that have been used in other sandwiches, but it's a brand new, delicious sandwich that people haven't tasted before. Right. It's like a, it's like a new hamburger restaurant opens up. I'm still, <laughs> you know, it's still meat, but I'm making a slightly different burger than Wendy's or or um, McDonald's or whatever. Also, Go Rightly says an advanced intelligence would destroy every trace of Billy Joel from the universe. See, now that, that is the kind of single-minded <laughs> thinking that I, I don't think advanced non-human in, intelligence is going to respect at all. I, seriously, we should, I'm going to do an entire show of my podcast and post it on his Facebook wall of nothing but Billy Joel songs. And I'm going to keep doing it until he <laughs> deletes me as a Facebook <laughs> And he'll do it, too. Yeah, probably. Carlos no, hasn't answered back, so he's, he's essentially probably really pissed off at you now. Probably. I would, I would say to go rightly, don't go changing. Don't try to please me. I like you just the way you are. <laughs> he isn't sexual. changing. He's, he's unwavering in his, his uh, absolute hatred of Billy Joel, for which I respect him highly. Yeah, so do I. I don't agree with him. But I him. <laughs> and but I it, agree with him. You know, in my, one of the things, speaking of music, and you and I have talked about this both publicly and privately before, one of the things that I touch upon in my book is, the, in fact, probably the central thing, is this idea of viewing the paranormal as an art form or an artistic expression by the advanced non-human intelligence, trying to communicate with us through signs and music and not necessarily the kind of music kids you're listening to in your, your podcast or radio or whatever you have today. Newfangled crap. You newfangled crap, you crazy kids with your crazy techno babble music and your auto tunes i'm pretty sure the aliens aren't using auto tunes by the way i'm just guessing but this idea that they could be communicating to us and i use the example in fact in the book you don't have in your copy you don't have it but in my copy i've added it uh it's a uh, it's a circular fireworks um, explosion or whatever you call a fireworks thing going off that i took at one of those minor league baseball games we went to yes, a couple years yes. ago I think it was the um, the one we went to the Lancaster the High Desert Mavericks. So they yes. had fireworks after the game, and I took photos of the fireworks. And in the night, it kind of looks like a UFO yes. because I caught it just at the moment where there's an opening center and there's just per almost symmetrical round lights around it and everything. So I say, "Is this a UFO?" And I go, "No, it's just a fireworks display." But it's it's sort of an artistic fireworks when done right, form of art. 
Um, yeah, you should see them at theater. Disneyland. We use light. We use those kinds of things as a form of artistic expression. So what if the aliens are doing the same thing? And I'll, I'm now calling them aliens, advanced non-human Whatever. intelligence, wherever they come from. Shorthand. Yes. In terms of these displays of lights in the sky that we see. The same thing could be one of the reasons I love Close Encounters of the Third Kind so much is because I think they got it right. That moment where they communicate with us through music. Mm-hmm. I, the, it's the common thing that I think we could all understand that, that would resonate with any intelligence throughout the universe, I think. Yeah. So I kind of joke in the book that you know I have my non-human intelligence identify himself as, I've changed the name from Zorgrot, I think, to Kevin. But whatever. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kevin. You know, and here's here's how we kind of communicate with you. We're not terribly cons- we don't fly spaceships and stuff. But we here's we really like you at a certain level. We really like that Paul McCartney guy and Bach and Beethoven. We really got them, and I think they got us. And you know, all of you are capable of doing it. It's just most of you don't tune into it. And so that gets back to the political thing, or at least how we order our societies, which isn't part of the book actually. But I'm thinking of adding it. We are spending more and more and more money on business degrees and sending kids to business school and colleges to learn business. I don't even think business should be taught in a university um, because I think that's and it's it's not what a university should be about. But reasonable people can disagree. But at the same time as we're doing that, we're cutting basic funding for libraries, for music programs, for theater, for arts in our school system. Well, okay, we shouldn't be surprised at the kind of kinds of children we're turning out. Money-oriented, greed-oriented, perhaps not the kind of kids that I'd like to see, the next generation. And I'm not saying that, you know, you, you've got to run a business, you've got to earn a living in this world, it's the way the world is ordered, that's fine. But I think we have to make time for music and art and theater, not just reality television. And we need to teach that in schools, and we need to value a liberal arts education. <clears throat> yeah, We're not. We don't put money into that kind of stuff. And so if you believe that an advanced non-human intelligence, as I do, is communicating with us in a way that resembles artistic expression, then I think we might be moving as a society and as individuals further and further and further away from an ability to access that communication because we're moving further and further and further away from what you might call a liberal, liberal arts mentality. Yeah. And so I think... In a real way, there's a great scene in Battlestar Galactica, the revised series, the new one that was out a few years ago, where the Starbuck character, they're trying to find Earth. The Starbuck character at the end of season three, I think, is believed to be killed in some sort of wormhole type thing. And I think she's dead. She comes back at the beginning of season four. Um, Actually, I think it's the end of season three. Dies earlier in season three. She says, look, I've been to Earth. This is impossible. You're dead. I saw Adamus or um, Apollo says, I saw you die. I was flying on your wing. You, your ship broke up. I said, I've been to Earthly, blah, blah, blah. So she says she can help the fleet find Earth. Fine. And she has this musical rhythm, which is all along the watchtower, running through her head. The fleet, to get away from the Cylons, keeps jumping away from the direction she wants to go in because the Admiral and the powers that be believe that it's the safer way to go. And she keeps saying, we're getting further away. I can't hear it anymore. I can't hear the song. I can't hear the directions to Earth. We're losing it. I, and, you know, that's kind of the Coles Notes version. It's one of the reasons why I love Battlestar Galactica. It's one of the few intelligent television shows made in the last 15, 20 years. But that idea that we're moving further and further away 
from Earth, from the ability to find whatever the promised land is, or to access that advanced non-human intelligence. And I think as a society, we're doing that. And I think the people that we should be looking at are philosophers, musicians, not scientists. I don't think the answers to what the advanced non-human intelligence is going to be is going to come from Nishio Kaku or Carl Sagan or Stan Friedman or Hawking or any of these people. I think it's going to come from people like Kierkegaard and Paul McCartney and Bach and Schopenhauer. And, you know, you could go down the list. I'm just dropping a few names. But that's where it's going to come from. And Picasso and Jackson Pollock and you, you know, on and on and on. Because they're the ones who get us in touch with what our central being is, whatever that is. Hey, Paul. And I think by huh? You, go yeah. ahead, finish your thought. No, I was just going to say, and I think that by getting in touch with our central being, it helps us get in touch with the central being, whatever it might be. Right. Uh, I I want to ask you: Did you read my post from like three years ago called "Are UFOs a Cosmic Art Project"? Read it. I stole it. No. <laughs> I, I think I came up with the idea on my own. I mean, I'm a former musician. I'm a no, filmmaker. I'm not saying you stole it from me. I'm saying, did you read it? Because if you I, didn't, you might want to include parts of it in the book if you didn't. And I, I would be happy for you to do so. I did read it, and I do intend to include parts of it in the conclusion of the book, actually. I'm saving oh, okay. it to the end for maximum effect. Oh, well, best for last. But it comes back to, oh, you're up two to one. I think I heard a siren. Yeah. But it comes yeah. Greg pulls ahead. LA2, Halifax 1. Oh! Hey, Sigrid. Good to hear you're in the studio there. Here I am. Yes. She's looking after Kitty. Oh, she can look after herself for right now. Her her diabetes is in remission. Yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I think mine is just starting to ramp up, so. We have insulin. Come on over. There you go. Oh, Carlos did answer back. I'm going to Los Angeles to get some cat insulin, Mom, if you let me the money for the flight. <laughs> Smuggling cat insulin. Uh, that Carl, would be a first. Car Carlos Canadian did write back, Paul. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah tell, tell Paul he deserves a death penalty for stating the Smiths are, are better than the Ramones. You, over, just, you over-analytical ass. He also assumes that the human race will be peaceful. I mean, I, a non-human race will be peaceful. I don't I do. think Paul assumes that the non-human race will be anything. Well, actually, no, I do assume that they'll be peaceful uh, for reasons I set out in the book, because if they weren't peaceful, we wouldn't be having this conversation, if they <laughs> exist. Um, or know, at least we can interpret it as peaceful. If, if at the very least, uh, non-involved uh, in any kind of major way. Right, not bent on our destruction, our con conquering us, abusing us for our resources, all the things that we do to people. Um, I don't think they think like that. And I think... Based on the evidence, that's a reasonable assumption to make. But you know what? I might be wrong. They might show up tomorrow in ships like Independence Day and blow the heck out of us, in which case Carlos will probably be better off than I am because he owns guns. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, conversely, I don't think whatever guns he owns is going to do a whole lot against the aliens or whatever they are. But if it makes him or anyone else feel better to own guns because it'll fend off the bad guys, oh, good for them. Um, yeah. So, anyway. Hey, I um, own a gun, too, Paul. You know that. I know, but you don't really use it. <laughs> you don't sleep with it and worship it. Not that I know of. Um, yeah. My dad owned a gun. My dad had a rifle when I was a kid. I fired guns. I fired fully automatic guns. Oh, that's on right. Now you're one on up on me there. Uh, I worked as a police officer. I held a shotgun, and I pointed it with bad intentions at somebody. Well, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't going to use it. 
but they thought I had bad intentions. So, yeah, you know, I just don't like guns, though. I, I just really don't like guns. So, mm. anyway, that's me. I haven't, I haven't, uh, got, it's a skeet gun, I actually shot 12 gauge, and I haven't gone out doing that in a while. Somebody's actually asked me if, if I could take them out skeet shooting. I think maybe I'll start it up again. Carlos also says the aliens are teenage sociopaths who are getting their jollies abducting people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's, you know, it's possible, I suppose. Um, this is just me agreeing now. I'm being Canadian now. Whatever, whatever Carlos says, I'm just going to agree. Just sort of go, yeah, it's possible. Could be. Perhaps. Well, I, I, yeah. Well, we, I think we both do that anyway. In, in, in the long run, we just, unless somebody's being a, a, a complete dick, your, your, your first response is to be, is to consider mine anyways to consider what they say if it doesn't sound totally insane. As Nick Pope would say, interesting if, if true. true. Yes. Which is Nick's way of saying absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's his way of saying, I would like to say you're full of crap, but I'm going to be nice. Nick, and, I'd, well, he's married now, but, you know, in the old pre-marriage days, somebody could have come up to him and said, Nick, I'd really like to sleep with you tonight. And he'd go, interesting, if true. <laughs> Nick, I'm pretty sure it's true. She just asked me to buy a whole bunch of liquor for you. And, yeah, no, I think, I think she's good to go. Interesting, <laughs> if true, Paul. Yeah. Uh-oh, I think Walt, uh, uh, Carlos might be calling in to yell at you. Wait just a second. Let's see who this is. Uh, radio Mysteria. The the radio show you're calling is is answering the phone. Oh, it's Ward. Okay. Hey, let me see if I can. Let me. S- oh, when did you send the email? Uh, about twenty thirty minutes ago. Oh, okay. Oh well, I I don't usually turn on the e- uh, email here. I've actually got my phone on so that I'm not interfering with the. Um, uh, signal. I'm, I'm using the phone signal to look at look at my Facebook messages. What, what were your questions, Ward? Oh uh, no, I just uh, I, I, there were some funny things in there, and uh, I guess I could just repeat them if uh, Paul can hear me. Yeah, I can hear you, Ward. Hey, Paul, how you doing? Good to hear you back on the show. It's been too long. Um, yeah, for some people, and not long <laughs> enough for others. But <laughs> I, um, I only come yeah, on Radio Mysterioso when the, I uh, notice that. On the sidebar of Greg's website, other people's names are coming in the same because he has all the names listed, and mine is starting to lose some of its luster. So I have to bump my numbers up. Oh, in the uh, tag cloud. Exactly. I have to be the most prominent name in the tag cloud. So. Yeah, I can I can barely hear you. Um, Here, I'll put me, the uh, I'll put the phone near I I think near one of the speakers there. That's a little better. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, Paul Kimball starring in The Hunger Games 2. <laughs> starring in The Hunger Games 2? Actually, yeah, I like The you know, Hunger Games. I thought it was a good movie. Yeah, no, that's um, But what I'm, I'm not going to be starring in any movie thing. I think ever. he's right about the whole direction of uh, the absurdity and mindlessness of just reality television going, you know, a fusion between, you know, American Idol and, and, and uh, I don't know. I don't know what it would turn into. I don't watch that stuff, but I can't stand it. Yeah, they, they, I don't know if you can hear me now, Ward, but they don't even really, in the industry, we don't even really call it reality television anymore. It's called factual programming, which is kind of an Orwellian way of saying <laughs> um, reality television, which was in and of itself a, a Orwellian speak way of saying this is complete and utter crap. It's as it's, it's far removed from reality as you can get. Something I address in my book, actually, I talk about reality television. Um, in in one of the chapters, so yeah, weird. It just seems like it's going to turn into an episode of Doctor Who or something, where 
you're, you're at the point where you're going to press a button for, uh, you know, do they live or do they die? And it's just like, oh, I, you know, it, it really is going that direction. Um, well, it, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, when I began my career many years ago in film and television, I was working as a consultant for a, a major film production company here in Canada, designing um, a television network, actually, for them that eventually was uh, licensed, became the Independent Film Channel. And so one of the things that I was tasked with doing, and this was 1997, was coming up with some programming for the network. Now, none of these things were ever going to get made, but with your application to the CRTC, which is like RFCC, you have to sort of say, here's our programming schedule, and you had to have original programming. So it's like, okay, fine. This is great. I've got a week to come up with original shows. I've never worked in the television industry before. Fantastic. One of the show ideas I came up for was, which shows I'm not quite as dumb as people think I am, was for a interactive drama series where at the end of every episode, like you would, it was kind of like a video game as we see them now. You could make one choice or another. Do I go left? Do I go right? Do I become a Jedi or Sith? Whatever. But this idea that at the end of every episode, you would be presented with two choices, or maybe three, but two to make it simple. And then the audience would vote over the next couple days, and then the, um, the people who made the show would shoot over the next three or four days the next episode based on what the people had voted on, so that the audience, to at least a limited extent, could direct certain elements of the show and the characters. They all thought I was nuts. Like, really, they, they didn't even put it in the application. They said, nobody will ever believe this. This is crazy. What, what is happening now is certainly in reality television with the music stuff, American Idol, it's already there. But I think we're about to see it start happening in um, scripted television as well. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. And all I was doing was ripping it off of the Batman comic where they, they had the vote amongst readers to see whether you'd kill Robin off which anyone who's old enough would remember they killed off the second Robin, because they had a reader's poll. You've got a week to vote. Do we kill Robin? Do we not? Does the Joker kill him or not kill him? And whatever you say, that's what we'll do. The one thing I realized as I thought about it over the years, it was the dumbest idea I ever had, but the one with the most foresight. Dumb because there, it totally demeans the skill set of writing. And it says, well, okay, everybody can just participate. No, that's what video games are for. You know what? Scripted drama, and I also think documentary programming and stuff, the audience shouldn't have a say in what happens. The say that they have is whether they watch or not. But it should be up to the people who produce the show and make the show to make those kind of decisions. So I've got, sorry, I've gone off on a tangent, but it is the industry I work in, and it's, it's depressing, believe me. It, when you hear people complain about reality programming, nobody is more depressed about reality programming than people who make scripted drama. <laughs> because it is killing scripted drama and it will kill it even further once it seeps into scripted drama in the exact same way that i sort of imagined 15 years ago which i think is about to happen so anyway back to you ward sorry yeah, i went no, off on a cool. tangent I didn't know you My worked on the ifc that's like one of the i mean i don't watch television really but that's one of the few channels that i think is worth looking at and i also agree with um that's so funny you feel that way because i think that was one of the pinnacles in television like the last 10 years was that 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 season of Battlestar Galactica, where, um, God, that song, All Along a Watchtower, that version that I think it's Bear McCready does. Oh, my yes. gosh, that's a good song. Wow. Yeah, I, I actually think his, it's, you know, it's an interesting question. The debate always rages, is Bob Dylan's original better than Jimi Hendrix or vice versa? I think you can actually put the Bear McCready version in that conversation with those two. Um, 
particularly in the way they used it in the series, the way they brought music in as part of the kind of alien intelligence and, and the way they actually brought religion in or the idea of God without actually throwing it in people's faces. I, I think it's the most intelligent writing, really, of the last 10 or 15 years. What did you yeah. think of uh, Caprica? I like Caprica. Caprica wasn't too. as good as Battlestar Galactica, but Caprica, partly because it took the religion thing and made it a little too pronounced, I thought, but it had a lot of interesting things to say about a lot of interesting issues relevant to us. The problem is it didn't have enough stuff blowing up. And, you know, Battlestar Galactica, even at its uh, most intelligent, they still blew stuff up. They understood that, yeah, this is still a sci-fi space opera. We've got Cylons, we kill people. So there's still action, but we're using the action to, to seed the intelligence stuff. And I think Caprica's problem was there wasn't enough action. I liked yeah. it. And a lot of people did, but it didn't. It didn't break into a more mainstream audience the way BSG did. And I think it's precisely because it was a little too highbrow, and there wasn't enough stuff blowing up. Yeah, that was really cool. I mean, that's a good observation um, about the uh, about the Cylons. Well, I mean, essentially, before they tried to explain the whole thing, they were kind of the true believers, and it was like you know interesting to see it from that perspective. But hey, you know, Paul, I read something on your blog. I I, I don't know. I hadn't heard from you in a while. I visited there a couple months ago. And it was sort of like you were kind of saying, like, say la vie or see you later, and you're more interested in discussing, like, you know, culinary arts and, and other things than UFOs. And I was like, man, you know, I may not agree with a lot of what you think or a lot what you say, but at least we need somebody in this field who's, uh, who has some intelligence and some eloquence and can debate topics and topics. So I hope you don't leave this field, man. Well, I was, I was never in the field because I don't think there's a field, which is a long story. But it... I have a people people always misunderstood me. I have a wide range of interests of which the paranormal is just one. And Mac Tony's had this same thing a couple of years before he passed away. He was going to drop his blog and his reasoning was he just didn't want to feel like he had to make a post every day. Yeah. You kind of become trapped by it. And that's sort of why I was kind of also getting fed up with the petty bickering and the UFO thing and I felt trapped by the other side of truth in the sense that I felt like I kind of had to make a post every day, and I felt like I kind of had to say this or that. So I stopped it. I, I have a new website, which Greg will link to, because I'll send him the link. Yes. And I have a blog that addresses all of that stuff, including some paranormal stuff, and there's some paranormal writings, which is a better reflection of who I am and what I'm interested in. But it's also a better reflection of the fact that I don't spend, you know, every day thinking about this stuff. I, now I just feel the freedom to post something if I'm interested. Okay, well, cool. I mean, just I, I do appreciate you still stopping by on uh, on Radio Mysterioso, and maybe you know occasionally you can swing by Don's show or something, and uh, you know just give us the thing that's going on. I mean, this this new book sounds really interesting. Yeah, well, I hope so. Um, I can safely, if Don ever wanted to have me on his show, I'll send him a review copy. Um, you know, I think I'd probably do. I think the publisher, because they want to sell the book, will send it out to shows. And my only caveat, it's going in my contract, is. I will not do the Jeff Wrench show, and I will not do the Paracast. Other than that, anything is, you know, fair game. So, yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm just I'm glad to hear that. Um, oh, and a correction, too. I think uh, um, I, uh, this is just a minor thing that I, I, I don't even know why I'm bringing it up, but I think Don Eckers, he's on the record saying he was very concerned on the government's role and what its limits were in what happened to Benowitz. Yes. In other words, he wouldn't have been like, ho-ho-hum, go ahead and do what you want. 
Oh no, 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 no. We, we discussed that. We knew that's what he what his feelings were, and um, the the funny thing is he's very pro government in a lot of places, except where there is some question of an abuse of uh, a, a U.S. citizen's rights. Then he he right. swings completely in the other direction. Yeah, we right. were. I think we were kind of just, as we would say in Canada, taking the piss out of him a bit. Kind of just making, in a good-natured way, fun of him, oh so briefly tonight. Um, and it's a, it's a shame after that show, folks couldn't tag along to the after party at the House of Pies, where Don <laughs> and I started talking about Vietnam, because oh, that, that would have been, that so would have cool. been worth the Man, price I'd love of admission. To have been there. Man, that, that 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 that's just amazing. And also, another thing I want to say, Paul, is it's. Um, I think humility is a rare quality, and I think you've shown. Um, I think. I don't know, maybe just around caffeine that night, but um, the the two comments that you made about uh, Bud Hawkins tonight and that comment about Carlos, too, has shown some um, um, humility in you tonight, which I, I think is a rare quality. I wanted to compliment you on that. Oh, well, thanks. I doesn't The media is an unforgiving mistress, and <laughs> we live in a society where, unfortunately, we're trained when we're on radio or wherever to maybe amp it up a bit. Yeah. I'm as guilty of that as anyone else, and it's also my, I mean, I'm a lawyer by training it's kind of the way i am <laughs> i remind but, people of that actually when i have been defending you about that uh that that very show and my dad was a judge so you know i grew up in a household and i'm trained and i was a historian too where the you know it's but it's all there's no excuse it's who i am but i recognize that sometimes i go too far and I on the Bud Hopkins show, I did. I went too far. I mean, the guy just passed away. Whatever I think about his work in the hypnosis UFO thing, he led an admirable life. Uh, he was certainly, uh, in the art world, uh, a significant figure. And by all accounts, from everyone who knew him, he was a genuinely nice man. Those are the things I should have said. And I should have left, kept my mouth shut about what I think of the his work with the abduction thing. And, I, you know, my opinion, even when I gave it on that, was not necessarily what i really uh, felt so yeah like, no i apologize to anyone who was offended by that um yeah i don't know if it's yeah, humility because i'm definitely not the most humble person you'll ever meet i just think it's the recognition that we all make mistakes and i make more than most people and i'm happy to admit <laughs> it when i do yeah but you caught yourself and anyway i'll let you guys go but um there's one last thing i did want to bring up greg i really really like this uh um i guess this is going to be the last of the alternate cons i guess and it's going to take a new form but um, yeah, well, somebody's going to have to pick up the the um, ball on that, and I don't know. I might be involved with doing it with somebody else. I do not know yet. We're in like very, 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 very preliminary talks to try and tr- kind of try and keep it going. Well, that's that's the fourth one. I mean, I, I'm 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 a paying uh, paying uh, admission or attendee. Yes, but I, thank that's you so much. That's the fourth one I attended, and um, um, uh, it was just it was great to hear, and uh, it was great to talk to you. And uh, one last question, I, you guys. What, both hey, Ward. Answer, Ward. Know? What did you think of the Pleiadian guy? You, you know can, what? You can you're be gonna, totally you're gonna, um, honest absolutely too. Absolutely laugh, but um, um, I tuned into Micah Hanks, yeah. and I was enjoying it, and and, and then I actually um, I took a nap. <laughs> well, then you mi- you missed the Pleiadian guy, which was I when we started doing when we kind of when they brought me in to do this, I we all said we're going to have the kind of people on who we want to hear from, who are advancing the uh, field, of whatever it is, advancing thought a little bit, and saying things you probably haven't heard before. This guy, all he did was talk about his contacts with the Pleiadians throughout his entire life. And, well, I, I, and I don't... I I, it it Courtney, bored me. It yeah, bored the crap out of me. Yeah, well, I thought Courtney Brown was going to be on there, and I knew his role in that whole, you know, um, um, Hail UFO thing. in the yeah. tail of the comet thing. I was like, oh, damn, I don't want to hear this guy. Yeah, I only listened to part of what he was saying, and 
and it had to do with remote viewing and how it affects the species and how maybe everybody can do it. And, you know, I kind of agreed with him. I, I could see where he's coming from, but it wasn't anything new that I hadn't heard before, so I didn't really listen to the rest. Plus, I was still getting ready for my talk. So, And then after it was over, I had to go to work. Jeez. Well, I, <laughs> are we, I just did an audio recording of it, so I will check it out still. But, um, but um, I wanted to ask you this on the air, and Paul's here too. Um, in a recent interview uh, uh, with George Knapp, I think it was like, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, um, they had that ex-descending uh, Chris uh, Lambright. Book on. Right, and um, there was a statement by Doty on there. Yeah. And it, yeah, it was a written statement by Doty, and it said that Benowitz himself had been sending signals into uh, either the weapons storage area at Manzano or Kirtland, and I'd never heard that Benowitz was actively sending signals, but just receiving them or trying to oh, figure no, them well, out. He, he was what, send, what was that about? He was sending signals back to who he thought these aliens were, which oh. were probably NSA people. Yes, he was communicating with them back and forth. Now, for the fact of, I don't know what Doty was saying there. Maybe he was trying to, either it's something I don't know about, or um, he's trying to twist that part of the story into something that sounds more important than it is, which was that he, like I said, was, was sending signals out. But as far as I know, there were just signals that he thought were communicating with the, so, you know, with the aliens he thought he was talking to through his radio setup, which he built himself. Or actually, yeah, he built the setup himself, and the computer with the um, translations came from supposedly J. Allen Hynek, but nobody's ever been able to really prove that. Yeah, that that was that was pretty intense. And one last question. This is for Paul, and I'll leave uh, get off the air because um, it's Paul's night. Um, Paul, what did you? Uh, they've been pushing this new book uh, a couple of places on uh, Aztec, and I wanted to hear again your role in that. I think it was you. You did some kind of film, and you didn't want to get. You were dependent on financial backing from these people. And you said you swear you'd never do it again. So I wanted to hear that story again and what you thought of Aztec, and uh, just for good laughs. Thanks, guys. Great show tonight. Okay, Thanks, Ward. Thank you. Thanks very Take much, care. Ward. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Good talking to you. So, Paul, what, what's up with this, uh, with the uh, Aztec conference? Or, uh, or do you know what he was referring to? Yes, there's a, there's a relatively new book out by Scott and Suzanne Ramsey about the Aztec case, and I put case in quotation marks. Um, wow, yeah, no Aztec. That's a whole show in and of itself. <laughs> assuming I would ever be willing to do a whole show on Aztec, which yeah. I'm not. They actually asked me to participate in the writing of the book, which, given everything I had written over the last seven or eight years, I thought was kind of funny. But they said they wanted a um, a skeptical point of view. And I turned them down for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is I, I wanted my name associated with Aztec never again. But, um, you know, kudos to them for at least asking. It's a hoax. The Aztec quote, quote, case, it was a scam. Um put together by a couple of con men back in the 1950s. Uh, Leo Jabauer and um, Silas Newton was turned into a best-selling book by a gossip journalist named Frank Scully who wrote for Variety magazine. Um, It's an interesting story, but not for the UFO stuff. It's an interesting story about what Carl Flock would have called the will to believe, but also about the kind of cultural milieu of the early 1950s. And frankly, just how easy it was to fool people. I mean, there were an awful lot of scams using an awful lot of scam tactics going on. But if you look into the Aztec case, quote, quote, you will, and it was debunked in the 50s by a very good investigative writer named J.P. Kahn for True Magazine. I mean, all you have to do, it's online. You can read J.P. Kahn's original articles. And once you read them, 
you should walk away and immediately go, yeah, okay, this is open and shut, done, closed. But if, you aren't, if you're not, then you can go a little further. You can watch the film I did because the distributor has it online for free, Aztec 1948. Yes, Scott's in there. Yes, you know, the so-called evidence is talked about. But concentrate on the parts that have Carl Flock in them because those are the parts that make sense. As I was making the film, I, I knew absolutely that I didn't buy any of this Aztec stuff. But yeah, the financing was coming from Scott Ramsey and his friends. They never once um, tried to exercise any editorial pull at all. They let me do what I wanted to do, to their credit. I've always said that, to their credit. Having said that, when other guys are writing the check, you do feel an obligation, or at least I did, to give them a oh. fair hearing and give them the preponderance of time, which Scott certainly gets. And Scott was our tour guide in Aztec, and so we spent far more time with Scott than we did with Carl. We only spent a day with Carl. Um, but yeah, you know, if you watch the film, I think you can see the parts in where I'm almost winking at this. But yeah, Carl's the stuff to focus on. The fact that I call it Ufology's Dracula, because it was a case that was dead and buried 60 years ago, like a stake put in its heart. And yet, more than once over the last 60 years, some well-meaning person has come along and said, hey, look, there's a guy in a coffin with a stake in his heart. Let's pull the stake out, see what happens. And, you know, the vampire comes back, um, rapes a few villagers or eats them or whatever vampires do, and eventually they stake it again and it goes away. But then the sequel. That's the Aztec case. It is Ufology's Dracula. And Scott and Suzanne Ramsey and a few others have pulled the stake out. And I was one of the members of the party that at least drove up to the castle in the carriage and maybe I handed them the stake or something like that. So yeah, I mean, you can go on my blog, the old one, The Other Side of Truth, go to the search engine in the blog and just type in Aztec and you can read everything I've written on Aztec and that would pretty much show you what I think of Aztec. And some of the things just glaring like giant searchlight, neon searchlight things in your eyes saying fraud, hoax, scam, and just basic research mistakes that Scott made not, and that other people have made before him and how this witness is clearly not telling the truth, even though he's trumpeted, a guy named Fred Reed, even though he's trumpeted as one of the best witnesses by Scott. And here's why his story doesn't make sense. I mean, I set all that stuff out. And if, you know, anybody ever wanted me to do an entire two-hour-long show critiquing Scott's new book, I'd say no, because I've done it, I've written about it, and frankly, I think it's a distraction. I think most of these cases, are, that's the theory I've come to. It's why my book doesn't really talk about cases, because I think cases are distractions. I think we need to move beyond cases, whether they're real cases or not. The, the ones that aren't real are even more distracting. But even if they're sort of real unsolved cases, ah. just just sort of go, you know what? Ah, we're going to assume that this is true and let's talk about what it might mean. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my take on the Aztec case. Sorry if that is not uh, where you might wanted me to go with that, but that's kind of where I am with it. So I, I have the uh, same feeling about the Aztec case. In fact, I was at one point... Strangely enough, in, uh, discussing with uh, Bill Moore, writing a co-writing a book about it, based on all the files he got on the case and uh, you know all the court records, the FBI files, everything. Yeah, and Bill was actually he. I think he wrote an article too, 
years ago when he was still active in the UFO thing. Bill Moore did good work. I also think Bill Moore was a liar and he lied about certain things, but I also think he did good work in other areas. And one of the things that he got right was the Aztec case. And he wrote a paper, I can't remember where Carl gave it to me, um, re-debunking, if you can put it like that, the Aztec case. Because it had surfaced again during the time when he was active in UFOs, somebody else had brought it to the fore and he stepped in and said, no, this is not a legitimate case. And he was right. And his paper was right, just as J.P. Kahn's paper was right. But, you know, like the Dracula, they keep pulling the stake out. So they keep pulling the stake out with Roswell, too. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, let's. Uh, we've got 15 minutes. Let's throw down here for a second. What did he lie about? Although Roswell is more like a werewolf. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what? I Like, that gets into some... I, I don't want to throw down on more. You have your opinion, which I respect. This my opinion based on what I've heard, what people who knew him have told me, people who worked with him have told me, and I think we might be able to guess who I'm talking about. Bill Moore was not truthful about a lot of things. And you can just be flat out and look at the Benowitz case. And he was involved in that, and he was lying to his research partners and people in the community. Now, whether he came clean about it later or not, doesn't really matter when you come to the question of whether or not you can ever trust him again. Do you that mean lying mean by withholding that, information or lying by lying? Both. But that doesn't mean that what he says isn't true. It just means you kind of have to say, step back and say, we can't automatically assume that what he says is true, which you should do with everyone. But with more, the grain of salt that you have to take it with is even greater. So, you know... I, I know I have, he's, I I know he's your hear friend. a specific uh, instance. Um, what? I have Sorry? yet to hear a specific instance. Well, I could get into them, but I just don't want to. Because okay. it would involve talking about other people who relayed some of the things that Bill was involved, including things that could be perhaps characterized as mail fraud. Um, you know, that's just... It's oh, you like, mean people ordering things and then he just never got around sending it to them? Yeah. Well, that's I mean, not that's not lying. That's just bad business. No, to me, that's lying. When and it's a form of lying. When you say you're going to send somebody, you take money from them, you cash checks, right? But then you never actually send it to them. I guess that's even worse than lying because it is fraud. But like, I've heard other me, people say that too, and there's no way for me to refute that. To me, Moore is a peripheral figure. He's not in it anymore, and um, you know, it's like it's one of those things that you and I just agree to disagree on. Yeah, uh, to me, but it's not a biggie to me, right? Bill Moore occupies zero point zero 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 one percent of my consciousness. <laughs> so, and and maybe yours is point two or whatever. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, I don't want to throw down about Bill Moore. Okay. Because uh, yeah, there's to me, there's no point in it. We just agree to disagree. So screw you, Bishop. Yeah, no, I just I would like to hear these things from from different people because I I remember the thing about having many people reporting that he, had, he they had ordered things and he hadn't sent them out and I think I actually asked him about it at one point and he said I just didn't get around to it I screwed up. That's no yeah. excuse, but he acknowledged that that's what he did. So yeah, well, they, they, you you have made a point and I agree with you. Yeah. You're still up two to one on the sirens. Yeah, that's true. Let's let's end the note on a friendly note. Let's not talk about <laughs> Bill Moore. You can time for you to riff. I should ask you a question. No, I don't want to ask you a question. No, go ahead and ask me a question. Well, Please. tell me more about Falcon because I didn't listen to the show. 
the conference? Um, what I said in the talk was that um, the guy running the the uh, operation um, that uh, Doty Moore um, and to some extent their their contacts in the government, namely you know Kit Greenhow, put off uh, uh, John Alexander, a few others. What was going on? You know, the the guy that was running that show, nobody knew the identity, his identity, until Bill said he kind of figured it out. And he said that uh, Falcon was kind of surprised when he figured it out. Um, uh, and he f did it by a process of, um, of uh, elimination and uh, some, some digging and probably asking a few people. But what it turns out is the guy was, and he, he told me uh, early on when the book was being finished, because he wouldn't tell me for publication in the book, I guess he either felt the time was wrong or he didn't, uh, somebody told him he couldn't do it. I don't know. Um, but it's, it, he asked me to guess, and he gave me a couple of clues. It's one of those, if you tell me what it is, then I'll tell you you're right. So I gave him, a, you know, he said the guy used to be in the OSS, uh, OSS Office of Strategic Services, which was basically the intelligence uh, arm of the uh, defense uh, department in World War II, which morphed into the CIA, which was formed in 1947. The guy um, ran agents in Russia, etc. So I... I I started looking online, actually, and I found a place called namebase.org, which had a thing called proximity search, which they don't have anymore. So, and all these guesses I was giving to them, like, um, uh, what, Richard Helms, William Colby, um, James Jesus Angleton, people like that. And he was saying, no, 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 no. Um, so, at, you know, after about six or eight months of this, he took me to a, a location out in the middle of nowhere and told me the guy's name. And I, and I said, oh, okay, thanks for telling me. I went back and looked at the list I had, and it was on there. It's just that I hadn't recognized it. I mean, there were so many names on the list. I said, Bill, this guy was actually on the list here. He goes, well, I guess you hadn't got to him yet. But, you know. So basically, I guess I had guessed it, quote, unquote. Um, uh, but I hadn't actually said this to Bill. It was just, you know, a list of, you know, 30 names or so, 30, 40 names. And I was trying to whittle away at it using clues. And I think he just got annoyed with me coming up and saying, is it this guy? Is it this guy? I got more and more obscure in, in my guesses. But it turns out the guy's name was Harold Her Harry August Rositsky. Uh, uh, his parents were Polish. He was born in Brooklyn in 1910. He graduated from Harvard with a graduate degree in German language studies, actually. Uh, and he was uh, involved in actually paperclip type stuff. He was involved in uh, not really paperclip because those were scientists, but the the he he worked with Reinhard Galen. If you know who that is, Paul, I'm sure you do. Yes, he he uh, was actively involved in recruiting, protecting, and um, working with the guy as they were trying to figure out what the Soviets were doing because a lot of German intelligence had to do with the Soviets. Um, and they immediately recognized after World War II who the next quote-unquote enemy was going to be, so they tried to get, it would be very valuable, they thought, to get that person on board with them uh, by giving him immunity from prosecution. And um, he was with the CIA till 1970 or 71. He was the uh, head of their Soviet counterintelligence, um, or at least one of the main people involved in it. And uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, the, somebody decided to bring him out of retirement and put together, maybe he did it, I don't know. Apparently it might have been Richard Helms, actually, who was a CIA director in the early 60s, I believe. Um, what what they did was form an, uh, what I was told, and 
uh, informal group uh, that would basically uh, gather on, uh, gather information on, and pass on information and get information from spies in Russia and Russian spies that were here, and uh, find out where their all the um, uh, what's the word all, all the information was flowing. Um, and that's what that that's the part that where more came in because they wanted to uh, utilize the UFO community and people that are interested in UFOs as part of this operation um, because they knew for a fact that people posing as UFO researchers were asking UFO researchers here questions about what they had seen and what they'd seen in the sky and you know could you go over to here and see what you can see there and you know you might be able to see a UFO here and you know it it was just. One more little cog in the wheel of this the whole uh, counter-intel operation. Now, all of this was done off the books, and it's very hard to prove. In fact, it might be impossible. Um, I said this in the talk, and I also said that if I said, like I said earlier, if somebody can prove or disprove conclusively or push this forward, um, I think that would be great. And I'd like to hear from somebody who has access to this information somehow, maybe um, even off the record, uh, to the point where I won't repeat it, um, if there's some sort of something to back this up. Because as people said, they called me, you know, they, they asked during the show, how can you trust Bill Moore? How can you trust anything he says? And it's like, well, because he's a friend of mine, I consider him a friend, and I've never caught him in any kind of falsehood or, or lie in anything he's told me and in any of his dealings with me. He's always been above board, and, you know. And on top of that, He's a friend. Are you more inclined to tell the truth to your friends? Are you more inclined to give them a more complete picture of what's going on? Of course you are. So in my estimation, he's telling me what he believes to be true, or did. I mean, he's, uh, he's, I haven't talked to him in a while. I would say that's probably true, assuming that they really are your friend. And the only people that can, I'm not talking about more in particular here, the only people that can judge whether somebody's really your friend or not is, is the person who's the friend. But there's been a lot of people... Um, who thought people were their friends and they were lying to him. Um, I'm not saying Moore was lying, by the way. Uh, he might be. Well, he he might have. even be right. I don't know. He could um, have, Paul. I, I do not know. He could have been lying to his teeth through his teeth to me the entire time. I don't know. I choose the way, to believe him at this point until I find out that something he's told me is wrong, and I haven't yet. I, I would only say two things. One, if he was your real friend, he would have just told you the name instead of running you through that little um, dog and pony show. Um, and two, I say that slightly. I disagree with that completely. I I don't. I think if people have like to sort of make people go out and and do this little treasure hunt or whatever, I, I don't see the purpose of that. I know some people claim they see the purpose of that, but to me, it's like, look, just if you want to tell me who it is, just tell me who it is. If you don't want to tell me who it is, then I've asked you. You're not going to tell me. Fine. Maybe I'm not going to play these games. Maybe he was told not to tell somebody unless they had guessed. That's the standard operating procedure for a lot of intelligence people. They can't tell you because of some sort of oath or promise they've made, but they can tell you that you're right if you guess it. I think that's what his thinking was. That's that's what I think his motivation was for doing it that way. Okay. Like I said, we agree to disagree because that's not a leap of logic that I'd ever be willing to make, but you know, everybody's mileage on these kind of things differ. Yeah. The in, the interesting thing, though, is as you were talking, I Googled Galen and war crimes because I consider him a war criminal. Yes, he I is. Just, he was. I, I'm, I, that very definitely is true. 
a lesser war criminal, but still a war criminal. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing. On the first page of the Google search, scrolling down, one, two, three, four, five, six, the sixth hit, so it's on the first page, it says uh, Reinhard Galen and his organization. The URL is grayfalcon.us <laughs> slash Reinhard Galen. Yeah, I think so I've seen So even as you're that. talking about Falcon and Galen, I Googled Galen war crimes and Falcon shows up in one of the hits. I'm Folks who think I go too far in the synchronicity thing, I, I really am sort of tongue-in-cheek on this one. But I find it amusing yes. that, you know, <laughs> as you're talking about it, Gray Falcon. And then they have uh, another page, galen.grayfalcon.us. So there you go. Weird. I just find that a little weird. That's all. Because I could have I could have Googled anything. I could have Googled Galen War Criminal. Yeah. I bet it wouldn't have come up. I wonder. Let's try that. If I had Googled Galen War Criminal, would the Gray Falcon thing have shown up? Hmm. I've seen nope. that. I, I've seen that uh, link actually in the last few weeks while I was doing some research. There you go on the first page of Google, which and I never go beyond the first page on Google. Hey, two two. There's a siren. Where I can hear. Believe me, if you wait another thirty seconds, you'll hear it louder. Here, here it comes. Hear it. I, I hear rant rant. Yeah, that's that's the siren. They're just we. They don't like we're kinder up here. We don't let the they don't run the siren all the time. They only run it when they're getting to an intersection because they they don't want to wake people up as they're taking people to the hospital. So, so it's two two. We're tied. We might have to go to penalty kicks. Yeah, maybe. But the, uh, uh, at the show, the next show is uh, here waiting to go on. So we can't we can't take it over into overtime. No, no, no. Well, yeah, penalty kicks. We'll do paper, okay. rock, paper, scissors. Okay. Oh, wait, that doesn't work. <laughs> oh, okay. I have no idea what's going on. Uh, as you see from listening to this show, anybody that's still listening, um, Paul and I can agree to disagree about stuff, and we don't get really emotionally involved with it that much because it's not really worth it when you are friends with somebody to get upset over over belief systems. It's stupid. It's true, and I am FedExing Greg a package containing potassium nitrate and a bomb earlier to, or later today. So, um, yeah, or anthrax. No, well, at I like least you didn't make me guess uh, what you were going to send me. Sigrid, if you get right. a package for me in the next week, don't open it. Let Greg open it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep Kitty away from it. Now, at the second package you get addressed to you will contain maple products, so you can open that one. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. But don't open the first one. That would be the anthrax. Potassium nitrate, yeah. Yeah, no anthrax. I'm going to go with anthrax. <laughs> All right. We, we've got a minute. Do you want to uh, – what about that uh, uh, blog address? Um, yeah, link to it on your site, but it's www.beyonderstv.com. And the blog is called Tears in Rain, which is a meme that Mac Tony's used to use. So it's my tip of the hat to him. And he took it, of course, from one of our favorite films, Blade Runner. So, yes. yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, what goes around comes around. It's a never-ending circle of life. Billy Joel, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it all comes back to Billy Joel. God, I hope not. Oh, good. Don't, I'm glad you agree with me. Yeah. You will never hear Billy Joel during our show. <laughs> Fortunate, fortunately, there's plenty of radio stations where I can hear Billy Joel, like all the rest of them. So, you know, don't. But you know what? Don't go changing, trying to please me. I like you just the way you are. I'm not. Oh, and it's funny. You just mentioned uh, Blade Runner. 
uh, Bob's desktop now on his computer that he brought up is has uh, a Blade Runner graphic on it. See synchronicity every time I come on Radio Mysterioso. Every time, Gray Falcon, Blade Runner. I could have talked about anything. Crazy man, this is going in my book. All right. Uh, did you want to hear Gringo like me? Because I found yes. it. Yes, Gringo like me. That's what we'll go out on. Okay, Paul. Um, I will post this in the next uh, two or three days. And thanks again. And uh, uh, I consider myself lucky that Paul would actually uh, still do podcasts that weren't his own. So thanks so much, Paul. I consider myself lucky that you'd still have me on your podcast. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, great talking to you as always. You too, Sigrid. Say hello to Kitty for me. Hopefully I'll be out in L.A. or you'll be out here sooner rather than later. And I, I will filter out these horrible staticky things in the right channel. I don't know what that is. Uh, anyway, uh, thanks, Paul. And uh, if you want to stay on here, gringo like me, or you can hear it when, in the, rebr- in the uh, podcast. I'm going to kill radio right now to listen to it. Oh, so. okay. Cool. Uh-oh. It went, it went back to something else. No. It went. It went to uh, actually. You know what? It was about to play uh, the alternate take of "Thank You, Girl." <laughs> oh man, the synchronicities continue. So I got to get back to Ennio Morricone because I guess that's who wrote the um, music for that. You hear that? Oh, I can indeed. Okay. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks, Greg. Good night. Okay. See ya. your hand on your gun Don't you trust anyone There's just one kind of man that you can trust That's a dead man or a gringo like me Be the first one to fire Every man is a liar There's just one kind of man who tells the truth That's a dead man or a gringo like me Don't be a fool for a smile or a kiss Or your bullet might miss Keep your eye on your goal There's just one rule that can save you your life It's a hand on your knife and the devil in your soul Keep your hand on your gun Don't you trust anyone There's just one kind of man that you can trust That's a dead man or a gringo like me Keep your hand on your gun Don't you trust anyone There's just one kind of man that you can trust That's a dead man or a gringo like me Or a gringo like me Or a gringo like me Like me me.